the the best instructors in any modality build relationships of care and reciprocity with their students and use those relationships as the foundation for teaching and learning. So I think the very best online instructors find ways to make meaningful connections with their students and use that to propel, use those relationships to propel learning forward. They're also attentive because of those relationships to the idea that not every student takes to online learning equally well and that they all need different levels of support and coaching and advice and mentorship. And so really great virtual instructors spend a lot of their time uh, checking in and supporting the students who are struggling with online learning. everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You. I have so been looking forward to today's conversation with Dr. Justin Reich, who serves as an Associate Professor of Digital Media in the Comparative Media Studies Writing Department at MIT and is the Director of the Teaching Systems Lab. He is also the author of a terrific book, Failure to Disrupt, why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education and is the host of the Teach Lab podcast. Justin earned his doctorate from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, was the Richard L. Menschel Harvard X Research Fellow. He's a past fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, and his writings have been published almost everywhere, including Science, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and other scholarly journals and public venues. And what I most especially like is that in his bio, he says that he started his career as a high school history teacher and coach of wrestling and outdoor adventure activities. So maybe we can come back and and ask you about that. So Justin, welcome to the Ingenious Youth Community. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. So you have a great sounding position, uh, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Director of the Teaching Systems Lab. What does that mean and what do you actually do? Um, well, I'm a faculty member at MIT, so I teach stuff and do whatever else they tell me on the work and family council committee this year. Um, but the main thing I do with my time is I run an interdisciplinary lab called the Teaching Systems Lab, and we aspire to design, implement, and research the future of teacher learning. Um, so most folks in education research, uh, they're mostly interested in how students learn. We're particularly interested in how educators learn and get better at their jobs. Yeah, which is so, so important and valuable um, as you have written about. And I'm eager to hear more uh, of your thoughts in that regard. Now, as I mentioned, you've written a book that has gotten a lot of attention. I know you've been interviewed a lot um, about the book and the thinking that is um, reflected in the book. Why did you decide to write this and, and why, why now? Uh, why now is because it's incredibly late. Um, so in, in 2015 or something like that, um, I was working, as you mentioned, at Harvard X. Uh, Harvard had, and MIT had just formed edX. Uh, and I was one of the, I was the first full-time researcher hired at Harvard to study the enterprise of Harvard X and uh, MITx and edX. I was a, I, I gave a relatively early talk 
about some of our early findings. And there was an agent uh, who from New York, a book agent who was interested in the topic and said, you ought to write a book about it. And I said, oh, that sounds fine. And we managed to find a publisher, Harvard University Press. And I said, oh, I, I bet I can get this done in about a year and a half. Well, then I got a new job at MIT and I got some new projects started and then I got a different job at MIT. And so I turned in this book three and a half years late um, from when I said it would get it done. It took me five years instead of a year and a half. So I don't know. Now when all my students, you know, turn in their stuff on Thursday instead of Wednesday, I'm like, it's not a problem, folks. I've been a lot later than you before. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been late like a seventh of your lifetime. Uh, and, and uh, um, but I think there was some sense in 2012, 2013, 2014, that there was some, you know, there was certainly a lot of really aggressive rhetoric that education was on the cusp of this profound transformation. And, and it was going to so remake the educational system that general audiences should be really interested and informed. Um, the original title of the book was actually Massive, the Future of Learning at Scale. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, a, a thing about the book that I hope readers take away from it is that it's, it's not, I, I'm ultimately optimistic about how technology will improve human development in the decades ahead, but it's not going to be dramatic transformational changes. Um, and uh, so the book in some ways is kind of balanced in that way. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument in favor of tinkering, in favor of continuous improvement. It turns out that you're not allowed to write sort of balanced titles for books. You can even have something that sounds pretty optimistic, like massive, the future of learning at scale, or you can have something that sounds pretty pessimistic, like failure to disrupt why technology alone can't transform education. So I, in the end, I, I'm quite glad that we, you know, we went with the more pessimistic framing for marketing purposes because the book got released in September of 2020, um, right as the pandemic was getting ready to crush its second year of schooling. And, you know, I think, I think education technologists, evangelists have a much harder job ahead of them now convincing the world that we're on the cusp of profound changes from online learning and education technology because so many people have had such a lousy, you know, three academic years now uh, trying to make uh, emergency pandemic schooling work. So that's yeah. the long, that's the monologue on the story of where the book came from. Well, that's really interesting. And I, I you know, in, what, what one thing that's interesting is that I do think the title is part of what's captured the attention of people uh, to want to pick it up and start reading. Um, personally, I found it to be a very positive take on what's happened. And I think when you talk with educators who've been in the trenches trying to figure out how to use technology, um, many of them, if not most of them, come to the conclusion that you come to in this book in terms of the, the power of a more incremental approach and the transforma transformation that happens over time. So I'm going to come back and I, I want to ask you to unpack that a little bit. But in the book's opening, um, you do, in fact, uh, you're quite bold in stating that higher ed has been bombard bombarded with pitches for how the latest technology is going to transform the educational experience, but then you go on to say, and then it fails um, time and again to deliver on the hype. Do you have a favorite example uh, in that regard that you can share? Well, I think one of the most egregious was this company called Newton, 
um, headed by this guy, Jose Ferreira, who said that he was building, a, you know, a magical robot tutor in the sky that knew your every thinking, that was informed by millions and millions of data points generated by every single student in the system. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a totally crazy idea. What they, what they were doing was much more plebeian than that. Um, there are a bunch of well-known algorithms for doing algorithm-guided instruction, um, where you have a you show a student some problems, you have the student answer the problems, you have a computer decide whether or not the problem the, the the response is correct. If they get a correct response, you give them the next thing in the sequence. If you if they get something wrong, you give them some form of remediation or something like that. Um, but the sort of interesting idea that Newton had was to say, um, not every company needs to build that algorithmic backend. Uh, if you just build a bunch of problems and a bunch of remediation materials and things like that, we'll do all the algorithmic stuff for you. Um, and you just have to provide us with the content. That's sort of a marginally interesting idea, but it was presented as this like dramatic transformation of how higher education was going to work, you know, and a, and a bunch of the statements about it were just plainly false. Um, if you've ever sat in front of a student who's using, you know, a, a sort of algorithmic tutor, a cognitive tutor in math, you know, they're not generating millions of data points every day or something like that. You watch them like very slowly kind of bored type things into the system, take a while to read it and stuff like that. Um, you know, one of my favorite parts of the story was when Jose Ferreira was going around telling people about his magical robot tutor in the sky, his engineers were writing blog posts which are like, here's how we use extensions of two parameter item response theory to build our models. Like, you know, two parameter item response theory is a statistical toolkit mostly developed by researchers at the educational testing services along with others in the 1980s. Um, you know, they were like we do with everything now, they were sort of shoving more data inside of it. Um, but this was, you know, it was almost like you, you sort of, uh, um, Jose Ferreira is trying to tell you that he's selling, you know, this rocket ship to the moon and you pop the hood open on it and you're like, no, that's an internal combustion engine. Like <laughs> those things don't go to the moon. We know where those go. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so I think that that was, that's one of my favorite examples uh, you know, eventually the company folded. It was sold for a song. Um, he had there was some great reporting about why it failed. I think in the New York Times, which is something like, um, "Well, the real problem was we were depending upon one large customer, and when that contract ended, our business wasn't sustainable." And I was like, "Well, the backstory to that is you couldn't get more than one customer. Um, <laughs> people didn't want what you were what you were uh, what you were selling." Um, but, but these stories of hype come in all kinds of other places. My Every year I ask my MIT students in my learning media and technology class to tell me a little bit about their ed tech history. And I've just now hit the wave of underclassmen who are from the smart board generation. Um, wow. so there are now many, many college freshmen, sophomores who can who tell a story of like, I was in middle school and then all of a sudden these smart boards appeared uh, and the teachers like used them for a week. And, you know, I had like one weird kind of person and my science teacher who did a bunch of actual smart board stuff with it. But every other teacher just uses a whiteboard or a projector panel and stuff like that. And there were a bunch of teachers who left it in the closet. Like, I don't, why did my school buy all these things and what's going on? I go, oh, great. Like, that's what we're going to try to explore in this class. Um, and to, you know, to some extent, you can say like, no, probably no one was active. I mean, unless they were under one when it fell, no one was probably actively harmed by the existence of these smart boards, but there was a huge opportunity cost. I mean, smart boards contributed zero, 
zero to human learning and human development during that period. And there were millions and millions of dollars spent on them. And that millions and millions of dollars could have been spent on something else. There were hours and hours and hours of human time devoted figuring out how to tinker with and click with these things. And that time could have been devoted to something better. Um, so there, there are real costs to these kind of boom and bust hype cycles. I think not only the opportunity costs, which I just described, but also all the teachers involved with that become then more skeptical and inured right. to sort of the next fad that comes along. And that's not how we want teachers to feel about innovation efforts. We want them to feel like there's a reasonable chance that, that thoughtful leaders and organizations have come up with good plans uh, that, are, that are worth trying and testing. Uh, but, there's a, but there's a tremendous skepticism, rightly so, uh, around these things. And that is an unfortunate consequence uh, of these sort of boom and bust hype cycles. So how do you make sense of the disconnect? What, what are we missing in the hype about ed tech? And you teach would, this and you research it. So I'm, I'm curious. I, the, the alternative framing that I try to propose, look, it, it is understandable that people who are trying to sell education technology are going to tell overinflated and unrealistic stories about what its potential is. But there's a very particular kind of unrealistic story, which is, you know, oftentimes phrased in the language of disruption, um, that, uh, that, that we're about, that the past is about to be swept away, and we have a brand new future that's forthcoming. And that just isn't going to happen. <laughs> human beings have tried to use computers to teach human beings for as long as we've had computers. Um, when there were computers the size of your living room in the 1960s, there were learning scientists and computer scientists who started partnering to develop new technologies to teach people. So this is now a 60 or 70 year enterprise. It is one of the very first things that we did at the dawn of digital computing. And there are smart people with lots of money and lots of resources who have invested in this effort. And so we've covered a lot of the good ideas. We, we've done most of the things that are out there. When people introduce a new education technology, the odds that it's genuinely new is very, very low. It's very likely to be an extension of something that already exists. Now that's fine. That, what human development looks like is taking things that kind of work and making them a little bit better and doing that over and over again until those little bits of better add up into more substantive differences. Um, but if you want to predict the future of education technology, it's not worth predicting dramatic disruptive change. You should, you know, what are schools going to look like 10 years from now? They're going to look roughly like what they look like today because schools change really slowly. What's technology going to look like? It's going to look roughly what it looks like today. There's going to be a, a, some small higher percentage of people learning online. There's going to be some percentage of people using some more mobile devices. The actual routines that you see, the sort of instructional routines in classrooms will be very, very similar regardless of what technology is being used as what you see now because improving these things is really hard. It's doable, but it's hard. So if you're someone who's sort of on the adoption end of these things, a great potential resource of all that history is that, you know, folks like me sitting around our offices and we study this stuff and we can offer some general advice on what has worked in the past and what hasn't. 
a way I try to organize that history. And so, you know, so the first lesson is when you encounter a piece of technology, the first question to ask is what's new with the assumption that the answer is just a little bit. You should be able to look at most things and realize that it's a very small extension on stuff that we've been doing for a while. Just like Newton was like a really small extension on a long history of cognitive tutors, intelligent tutors, algorithm guided learning. Other things are like that. Um, you know, the smart board was an extension of the overhead projector and the LCD projector, um, acetate, you know, a, there are a whole bunch of technologies that we've had to display notes to young people. Um, and this was just a small extension. So if we sort of know something, if we know that things come from history, then we can organize that history and we can figure out how to use it to our advantage. So I argue in the book that there's a genre of technology called learning at scale, learning environments that serve many, many learners and few experts to guide them. Lots of ed tech, especially ed tech with this disruptive narrative is like that. And there are basically three kinds of this stuff. There's instructor guided learning at scale, things that look like massive open online courses. There's algorithm guided learning at scale, things that look like intelligent tutors. And there's peer guided learning at scale, um, things that look like the scratch programming network um, or some of the original Canadian connectivist MOOCs. And just on each of these topics, each of these genres, instructor guided, algorithm guided, peer guided, they tend to use similar technologies within the genre. They tend to have similar pedagogical proclivities. And we have research about them. You know, instructor guided learning at scale works pretty well for already educated, already affluent folks who have good self-regulated learning skills. And it works much less well for almost everyone who's not in that affluent privileged category. Um, cognitive tutors work well in the small number of domains in which we have assessments that can be automated by machines. So early language acquisition, computer science, certain components of mathematics. Um, they don't work particularly well in any kind of domain where we're teaching people how to reason from evidence, which is too bad because one of the main things we do across our entire educational system is to teach people how to reason from evidence. So there are some big gaps there. Um, peer guided learning at scale systems, you know, like the scratch programming language, um, you know, the sort of informal networks of people who study things online. I tell the story of the rainbow loom crafting bracelet making community. You know, people in their informal spare time have incredible success engaging in communities where they're strongly interested. And when we try to integrate these things into schools, there are a whole bunch of reasons why they really don't work very well, um, you know, in part because of the really strong emphasis we have on um, attributing work to individual students, as well as the really strong emphasis on having groups of kids do the same thing at the same pace at the same time, when these other systems are designed, you know, for individuals to kind of follow their own pathway. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this. High quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments 
and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. Justin, one of the really valuable parts of your book is the historical context that you provide in the first section and the kinds of examples that you were giving right before our break. I want to come back to this and ask you how educators and ed tech professionals and really anyone who's in the position of making decisions about how to invest resources in new technologies might use this information to inform what they ultimately buy for their classrooms, for colleges, universities, uh, and the like. Um, so if you know something about those histories, which is what the first half of the book tries to do, then ideally, if you're a department head or a principal or you know an assistant provost for technology or any of those kinds of things, and someone comes and sells you, like, hey, there's this new thing that we could use to teach students, you know, and they're going to tell you that it's going to be transformative and it's going to be way better than what you had in the past. And hopefully you can flip through the chapters in, uh, in Failure to Disrupt and say to yourself, huh, you know, actually they've been like pretty good here and not that good here. You know, and if the kinds of contexts in which they've lurked, worked a little bit better than what we have now is a lot like your context, it might be a good idea to buy this thing. Um, and if it's from one of these classes of technology that doesn't work real well in your context or with your population or things like that, you know, you should have, be able to have greater confidence and be like, ah, oh, this probably isn't the direction that we want to go. This looks like the next smart board or the next Newton or the, the next thing that's going to end up in the trash heap. Right. Well, and I think that's a really helpful framework. It, you know, I, I, I appreciated uh, in the first part of the book, your comments about MOOCs in particular, and there are many of us that lived through the early hype about MOOCs and in reading uh, what you have just uh, described so well, it really helped me make sense as to why MOOCs did not deliver in the way that people thought that they would originally. Um, so I, I really, I recommend your book for that reason, if not for other, other reasons as well. 
Um, now, your book was mostly complete prior to the pandemic, I think. You've, you I had was, the writing. I was proofreading the chapters in, in March of 2020. So, the, wow. so schools, had, schools in Seattle and the United States had just started to close. Yeah. Um, and I was quite concerned, you know, when I, when I first got the, the request to finalize the copy edits, I was thinking to myself, oh man, is there going to be stuff that just seems so foolish six months right. from now? Um, yeah. And as it turned out, you know, I gave it to some trusted colleagues, I gave it to the editors who had helped me and we looked through it and we said, no, you know, I think most of this is going to stand up and I feel good that it has. And again, I think the core reason why, you know, a, a key part of reasoning the book suggests that, you know, school, the future of schools is an extension of the past. Um, if you want to predict the future, just look back and, and even really disruptive, you know, what the economists would call exogenous changes, things from the outside, they have a hard time changing what goes on um, with schools on the inside. Not that schools don't change um, in important ways and improve in important ways over time, um, but it's not swift and it's not technology driven. So for instance, you know, two of the most constant findings from the history of education technology are one, that when teachers get access to new technology, they use it to extend existing practices. We have good ethnographic evidence of this from the 1980s with the Apple Classroom of Tomorrow project. When you first give even innovative opt-in tech savvy in their personal life teachers, when you give teachers new technology, the first thing they do is find ways of doing exactly what they were doing before, but now with the technology. And that's not a knock on teachers. That's a description of what happens. Um, and it's a reminder to anyone who supports teachers that improving instruction with technology use is a developmental process. Um, some people move beyond that kind of, you know, replication, extending of existing practices, but it takes time and support. And then the second most common finding in the history of, or my sort of second main framing of the history of education technology is that learners who are from affluent backgrounds, uh, you know, new, new technologies disproportionately benefit learners with the financial, social, and technical capital to take advantage of new innovations. Um, and uh, it's actually quite difficult and very poorly understood, despite all the talk about technology democratizing education, how exactly we do that is very, very poorly understood by education technology designers and researchers and things like that. Um, and if you look at what happened in the pandemic, you know, educators put extraordinary effort, many, many, many hours, lots of tears, lots of uh, sweat and challenges and so forth. But for the most part, we reproduced the in-person educational system over Zoom, like through a kind of massive effort where in theory, kind of everything, anything was possible. We just reproduced what we already had online. And that's what we should have expected because teachers extend existing practices where there was novel innovation or where that pivot worked well, it worked best for, for the most part for learners who were already affluent. Um, right. If you were trying to serve learners who had difficult home environments to, you know, poorly supported home environments to learn from, um, who had, uh, you know, lived in broadband deserts in various kinds of places, all those changes worked far less well than they did in more affluent, more well-resourced, less, you know, oppressed and marginalized kinds of places. Um, so that is why, despite the fact that the book was written right before the pandemic was started, um, I think, you know, you could say that I sort of placed a bet on the on the consistency of those two principles 
Um, and because those two principles carried through the day, um, you know, I mean, I, I, around the same time, you know, there were folks who were big education technology enthusiasts who were hosting conferences called like the dawn of the digital age, you know, the dawn of the age of online learning. This, this pandemic is going to sort of change everything. So there are, I mean, even in the, even in the midst of the, the early days of the pandemic, when in some respects it was obvious that online learning was failing to meet the needs of lots and lots of learners and families. The overwhelming majority of people who experience online learning found it to be somewhere between disappointing and disastrous. You know, the EdTech evangelists were still out there saying like, this is a new dawn. And I just, I, I don't know, my joke was that uh, a new dawn isn't like a watershed moment. It's just a thing that happens every day that you sleep through and don't really notice. You know, that's sort of what they right. mean when they, right. they say dawn over and over again. So given, given that, I'm curious what your research suggests that faculty or instructional designers can do, if anything, to minimize the negative impact for these students who are at a disadvantage when it comes to technology and, and online learning. It's a difficult question because we understand the challenge, the research base on the challenge is quite solid. The research base on how to address it is much less so. One conceptual idea is to think of the digital divide as really two parts, a divide of access and a divide of usage. The digital divide of access is much better understood. So there, some learners have access to stuff and some learners don't. And the thing that you have to try to do is figure out who doesn't have access to, to stuff and make sure they have it. But the second, you know, the digital divide of usage, even if you could snap your fingers and give everyone um, access to the same stuff, there would still be inequalities. You know, we've known for decades that when folks from affluent families, when folks from majority white communities get access to two tech, new technologies, the learners get to use that new technology for creative expression, for complex problem solving with lots of adult mentorship and support. And low-income learners, marginalized learners are much more likely to use the technology for drill and practice much more independently with much less adult support. So even if you gave everyone the same technology, because of inequalities that exist throughout our system, we see those re-expressed. One thing that I think educators can do, so I guess the first thing educators can do is to be attentive to the digital divide of access to the digital divide of usage and see how they might address both of those things. A second thing to be attentive to is, as I've studied educators over the years, the ones who are, almost every educator that I've interviewed about technology is concerned about inequality. Some folks will say, well, the students in, some students in my class have access and can do things and some student can't. So I'm gonna create a technology entry level that everyone can access. And there's some reasonable, strong equity rationale behind that. There are other folks who say, the folks in my classroom have a certain level of access to education technology, but the folks in suburban affluent places have more access to that kind of stuff. So what I need to do is to work with my community to try to give them the same access and same opportunities as those more affluent folks. When I've worked with, you might say that people are either concerned about within classroom inequalities or sort of right. between school inequalities. The educators that I've worked with who have done the most ambitious work 
trying to create really technology rich learning experiences from students from diverse background, they tend to bring more of that between school inequality. They tend to say, look, some of my kids have really great access. Some of my kids don't have really great access, but I'm going to hold high standards. I'm going to try to do ambitious things and I'm going to fill the gaps for those students who need that additional support to make sure that they can have the same kinds of experiences that folks in other places have. That's probably the best starting point that I could offer uh, for educators who are wrestling with those challenges. And obviously an area for more research, it sounds like where, where research and um, a lot more work needs to, needs to happen. Um, let me ask you to step back a minute and talk about what you've observed in terms of uh, best practices uh, for online virtual instruction. I know you've seen a lot, you've talked to it, a ton of people who uh, who teach virtually. So, what do you have a, a you know a few things that you've seen that are that are commonalities in terms of best practices? The the best instructors in any modality build relationships of care and reciprocity with their students and use those relationships as the foundation for teaching and learning. So I think the very best online instructors find ways to make meaningful connections with their students and use that to propel, use those relationships to propel learning forward. They're also attentive because of those relationships to the idea that not every student takes to online learning equally well and that they all need different levels of support and coaching and advice and mentorship. And so really great virtual instructors spend a lot of their time uh, checking in and supporting the students who are struggling with online learning. That I think is really the, that's one starting point. A second starting point, particularly for people right now who are still in the midst of these very unusual high flex, simul teaching, emergency pandemic learning, if you're trying to figure out what to do next or how to approach things, ask your learners. There's exactly one generation of American students who have gone to school in the midst of a global pandemic. You know, you didn't, Melissa, I didn't, you know, most of us who are instructors did not. There's lots of things where the adults, where the instructors, the faculty in the building have a lot of really relevant experience that comes from their experience as learners. But this is not one of those areas. So I would start the design of learning experiences by talking to students and saying, well, what's working for you? What's not working for you? What have been the best learning experiences that you've had over the last couple of years? Here are some of the challenges I'm experiencing. How would you suggest that we address them? That does a couple of things. One, you'll probably get genuinely good ideas about how to address some of your learning challenges. And two, I think for all of us, the pandemic feels like something being done to us by mm -hmm. these sort of terrible external forces. But our response to the pandemic is something that we can build together. And so when students, when students' families feel like they're invested in the co-design of these learning environments and learning experiences, it's a way of giving them some, some autonomy, some control, some, some pathways for moving forward. So there's all kinds of great advice and instruction that's out there about good learning, about good online learning. But to me, the relational component is really an important place to start. And I'm so glad that that's where you started because I think that gets lost 
uh, way too often in the in the discussion and in the conversation about about online learning. So thank you. Thank you for reminding us about that. Now we have a signature question that we ask of every guest, and uh, here is, and I'm going to, I'm putting a, a, a unique twist on uh, the question for you. So, from where you sit right now, what are your thoughts about the future of higher ed? What gives you hope? Um, any concerns? And what do you think needs to be on the radar of college and university leaders as they look to the future? The, the thing that always gives me hope are students and learners. That is the first and primary source of hope because in all of our institutions, um, there are young people who are trying to create better futures and they're trying to create better futures for their state and their town, their country, their institution. And so that is the primary source of hope in my work. I, I think, I think folks across the nation, across the world should be incredibly gratified by the extraordinary effort of educators in the last three years to make schools and colleges still keep humming. So that gives me hope. Um, I get a little bit of hope from new technology advances. You know, for the book is called Failure to Disrupt, but there's lots of teachers who learn strategies over the next couple of years that they're gonna find ways of bringing back into their practice. And that will be good and people will learn better. The, the main threats to our higher education system are, are, are cultural and fiscal. Uh, you know, especially for our public education institutions, we've stopped defining their value as places where we develop citizens, as places where we develop new research breakthroughs, as places where we advance our culture. And we've thought of them as individually improving people's job outcomes. When there's, there's things that we can do as a society when our students are citizens that we can't do in the same way when our students are customers. Um, and we, you know, as everything is getting polarized in our society, there's an increasing political divide um, where our two political parties, you know, there used to be great unanimity, especially sort of at the state level, uh, that our great higher education institutions needed to be supportive. Um, there's, there's, as with lots of evidence of polar, as lots of examples of polarization, there are more places where um, the right is losing support for universities. And so we have to find ways of continuing to convince, you know, somewhat convince politicians, but really to convince the public that our institutions of higher education, that our public education systems, that they're the crucibles of our democracy. And we desperately need them to be healthy, thriving institutions to help each generation have a brighter future than the last one. So the things that I, I, I don't spend a minute of my day worrying about, you know, uh, computers taking over people's jobs and those kinds of things. If that happened, it won't be because people make really great computers. It will be because people stop paying for really good teachers. Um, and so it's and, and the way that we make sure that we have enough funding to pay for really great teachers is to make sure that we have public support. I mean, again, the good news there, I've, I've seen less evidence on this in higher education, but the support for schools during the pandemic as measured by center-right polling firms, as measured by sort of progressive education polling firms, is very strong. Particularly when you ask people about how good are schools across the US, um, people give like the schooling system sort of lower grades. If you ask them how their own public school is doing, they're very supportive. If you ask them 
How satisfied are you with the instruction that your child has received, the instruction and activities that your child has received over the course of the last year? They are shockingly high response. You know, 75 plus percent of parents um, would say that they're satisfied or very satisfied with the instruction that their students receive. It's a tremendous, uh, um, uh, you know, feather in the cap of educators uh, during the pandemic. So it's, uh, yeah, so, so the public is both the hope um, but uh, but you know we we will lose some great institutions if we can't find robust strong bipartisan support for them. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CHALUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.